Hey everybody, this is Scott Powell, and you are listening to The Word on the Hill with the Lanky Guys. Uh, today is Ash Wednesday, which means it's the beginning of Lent, which is our penitential season. And for better or for worse, you guys are being imposed a penance today. And your penance is to have to listen to a rerun of The Word on the Hill with the Lanky Guys. Uh, unfortunately, I'm out of town right now, and so we're listening to an episode from three years ago, where apparently I was in England um, so it's going to be great. Hilarity is about to ensue. We're going to have insights left and right. It's going to be great. Uh, you guys are going to love it. So we'll be back live next week. Um, until then, keep us in your prayers, and we love you guys. Happy Lent. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Word on the Hill. For the word in England. Well, we're both. We're both in yes. England. We're bi coast. We're bi. We're bi continental. We're bi. We're trans. We're a transcontinental podcast. Dude, that's awesome. And if there was a railroad, then we could be the transcontinental railroad. Oh wait, that means we're not transcontinental because that means it spans the continent. We're we're bi continental. Oh, bi continental, dude. That's just how it is. You're over there over the pond. How is how is your time in England so far? First of all, I'm Scott Powell. We are the Lanky Guys. Oh. Yes, yes, yes. And I am Father Peter Massett. And we are the Lanky Guys, and I am in England. My time is good. I'm uh, doing some doctoral work, presenting some papers and stuff. Well, today, I, uh, in, in honor of, of your location, I got myself some English tea. Oh, yay. And I put it, I, I boiled some water, and I put it into a travel mug and let it steep and put it on the top of the travel mug. And, and about put on five your, minutes put on later. Your monocle and top hat. That's exactly right, and uh, and then I took a sip, and it burned the absolute kimchi out of me, and I spit <laughs> milky tea everywhere. Because <laughs> it was doctored up. Yeah, because it was doctored up, and that's just how it is. And mm. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> well, a happy Lent to everybody. Happy I, uh, Lent. I hope everybody's uh, um, Ash Wednesday went like totally epically awesome. Yeah, how was ours? Did we have a lot of people on campus? Dude, tons of people on campus, tons of people at the church. Uh, Father Brady and I, what we, one of the events, because you can't really talk about confession. No. Um, and so we heard, I don't know, five, six hours each of confession. And, wow. and so one of the things that you can do, though, is that uh, um, we, we compare how many total years we heard. Oh, wow. Yeah, so, so I was something on the order of like 40 years or something. Wait, what, Father what does that mean? That means that, like, it's been six years since my last confession. Oh, it's been one year since my last confession. Got it. You know, so, so you can total them up because you don't know. I mean, there's no way to connect anything to anybody. So it's, it's kind of it's like the one fun game that you can play <laughs> at the end of the day. Yay. Hooray. <laughs> Hooray. <laughs> Dude, I, I think that there's something very special about how um, Catholics intrinsically know when Ash Wednesday is. There's like an internal barometer that goes off. It's like ding, 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 <laughs> and then they just go. Oh, dude, it's weird. Absolutely. It's the most attend. It's the most attended mass day of the year. It's it's and it's pretty sweet, man. I have to say, I just love, I just love it. I just love Ash Wednesday. The repentance. Everybody's fasting and getting everything happening, putting ashes on their head. It's pretty yeah, sweet. Dude. It is well, pretty sweet. What do we say we jump into this here first Sunday of Lent? Let's do it. So we are now on the first Sunday of Lent because we've passed Ash Wednesday, and we are looking at our first reading from the book of Genesis, chapter 9, verses 8 through 15. 
which then we follow with a response from the Psalms, which uh, are is Psalm 25. Okay. Um, and uh, that's four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, with uh, number 10 being the responsory. Hmm. All right. That takes us directly to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 through 22. What's up to Peter? Dude, what I up? always like it when we read from Peter because I think that it's just way cooler that I way. I feel like we've been getting him a lot lately. Well, that's because you're the word on the hill with Father Peter. And oh, I, it's kind of like a letter to our listeners every time we do this. <laughs> and then we're into yeah. um, I don't the first, the, the gospel is the first chapter of Mark, okay. um, verses 12 to the 15. I think this might come close to the shortest gospel reading that we ever have. It's among them. It is up there. Let's get into the readings. All right. So Genesis. So, okay. Now, I... Oh, I think it was last night I was going over these, and, and there, it's an interesting crop of readings, and I think there's an interesting thread that we can, we can glean from this. So this yeah, um, when, I, when, I was, when I was reading it, I, I like, there was a song that got caught in my head, and it was like, I can feel it coming in the air tonight. <laughs> Hold on. Phil Collins, everybody. Wait, is that no, Phil that Collins? Gen- that's Genesis. Which was headed by Phil Collins. That's exactly right, man. And don't, and you're in England. Come on, dumb. dude. This is this is an English American Genesis metaphor extravaganza. Pun. Yeah. <laughs> extravaganza. So <laughs> you were looking at yeah. These are really interesting. I was looking at like there's some like stuff there uh, going on. So let's dig into some some Genesis. Okay. And I have some I have some thoughts here. So I want to see where they go. So okay, um, I want to see where you're Genesis nine. Too. Genesis 9 is, so this is a description of what is known as the second covenant. So God, you know, through the old, through, through the scriptures makes a series of six covenants, right? So you okay. got the covenant, you, you've read this whole thing, right? You got the covenant with Adam and Eve, which is, you can, you can see the growth of the family of God through the covenants. You know this whole gig, right? So you got the first covenant is made with Adam and Eve, right? Who are the first yes. holy couple. And then God makes another covenant with Noah and his whole family. So you got the the family. Then you got a covenant with um, oh Abram, Abraham or Abram, right? Who is a tribe. Then you got the next covenant goes to twelve tribes. Then the next covenant is a whole nation, and then a kingdom. And then Jesus expands it to being a worldwide covenant. So so we're watching the growth. Now here's the thing. Here's what's really interesting. The first covenant. Now God is always faithful to his covenants. Okay, that's the one thing we have to get out of the way. We Absolutely. tend to not be faithful to God's covenants that he makes with us. Truth. But what's of note is who this covenant is actually made with. So let's check this out. It's Genesis 9, verse 8. God said to no one his sons with him. By, by the way, this is happening right after the flood. So we all know the flood story. I'm not going to give you the whole Noah story. So Noah, big flood. Everybody's wiped out. Everybody's gone except Noah and his family and the animals on the boat. So how many and people— And according to Peter, we eight, eight people— Eight people. Very good. Yeah, eight people. So Noah, it, Mrs. Noah. We get that in our second reading. Uh, does he say? Oh, it says eight, doesn't it? Yeah, so it's yeah. Noah, it's Mrs. Noah, it's the three sons and their wives. So six, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. You better believe it. Ham. Ha- ham? Not hem. Ham? Ham. You want the ham bone? 
<laughs> all right, all right. God said to Noah. So this is after they've gotten off the boat, right? The floods have subsided. Everything's good. God says, okay, I'm not going to do this again. God said to Noah and his sons with him, see, I am now establishing my covenant with you and your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you. All the birds and the various tame and wild animals that were with you and came out of the ark. I will establish my covenant with you that never again shall all bodily creatures be destroyed by the waters of a flood. There shall indeed not be another flood to devastate the earth, which we were wondering about that in Boulder last fall, remember? Because as the flood was coming. Oh, yes. God added yeah, this the sign. The deluge. The deluge. And then God says the sign will be um, the rainbow. I'm going to put my, be- my bow in the clouds and that'll be the sign. So Noah has the rainbow, which is why we all, th- that's why I assume everybody in Boulder has rainbow stickers on their car, right? Because they just have a devotion to this. So um, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> here's the yeah. thing. Here's my question. <laughs> Okay, so who is the, here's, here's, here's pop quiz time. Who is this covenant made with? Who does God make his covenant with? No, see, this is the thing is I read really closely today, okay. and okay, I good. was and I was looking at stuff and going okay. like, hold on. As I was looking, I was like, um, I am going to make this covenant with the earth. Yes. Isn't that Which, profound? Yeah, I was because I was thinking about you and all your work in uh, it, w- with trying to understand the new yes. creation. And, yes, this and, passage and was, is fundamental. Yeah, and I and and which is which is interesting because um, also when you're looking at the the Septuagint version, mm. all of the 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 nature of between. So it says, "I'm going to make my covenant between you yeah. and me." Yeah. Um, it literally speaking, it says a going up the middle, which. Is the oh, covenantal, yeah, the covenantal yes. sign of the split animals in which and you would walk, and if if I break this, between, this yeah. is what's going to happen to me. Yes, the 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 cross my heart, I hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. Yeah, and if I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. No, I hold on, that that's very apply. that's different. Yeah, I know, yeah, totally different. Totes do. <laughs> I uh-huh. always associate those two, but but That's yeah, weird. it's f- totally fundamental. It's really strange though. You're gonna have to talk to me about that because I because I, I was I was looking at this and I was like, I thought covenants could only be between people, not if you're God. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's the short answer. Ah, uh, uh, alas. <laughs> <laughs> so I can't make a covenant with a tree, but the God of all creation can make a covenant with whatever He wants. But but okay, what does that mean? I mean. What it means is that God is making a promise. He, he's entering into relationship with the cosmos that he has created. So that includes you, it includes me, it includes Noah and Noah's descendants, and everything else we see, down to the birds and the trees and the wild and tame animals and everything else. There's a covenant that was made with creation. This, by the way, is the only covenant that mentions that. The covenant with Adam and Eve, that wasn't mentioned. The covenant with Abraham and then Moses and David, it's not mentioned. Only here does God say explicitly, I'm making a covenant with the created order itself, which is profound. Um, the reason it's so profound is, well, you know, can we just jump to the psalm? Because I think there's something yeah, to yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, okay, absolutely. so our response, so we'll leave, leave that there for a second. Because, again, I think we kind of know this, the story of Noah. We've thrown out the, the confusing issue. But then the responsorial psalm says, Your ways, O Lord, are love and truth to those who keep your covenant. Your ways, O Lord, are love and truth to those who keep your covenant. Who, well, let, let me ask this in reverse. Who broke the covenant? The earth. No. 
I know. I'm just kidding. I was just oh. trying to go with our, <laughs> our previous one. Humanity broke the covenant. Not, I mean, because we know that God doesn't break the covenant. We and and we know that the earth is inanimate in in the sense that it, it is not a willing agent. And so we'll have to. De- I'd have to desu- deduce that it would be humanity. So who has not broken the covenant? Which you already said. But say it again. Uh, God and the earth. Yeah, creation doesn't have the capacity to break the covenant, right? Which means when the psalm says, your ways, O Lord, are love and truth to those who keep your covenant, who is it in the created order that is confused by God's ways and doesn't necessarily see love and truth everywhere they look? Who's the only uh, people that, who's the, who are the only things that sin? Um, dogs. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> Dude, I know. I'm just, I'm a little feisty this morning with my English tea. Well, it's, uh, even, it's of evening it's for me, humans. so I'm less feisty. Yeah, and, and okay. I'm not, it is, right, of course. But, and I'm not trying to get all weird and hippy-dippy and, and new agey, but the earth cannot break God's covenant, which means, so when, a, when, when humanity broke the covenant, it means we actually, we fell out of covenant. That's why God had to keep coming to us and bringing us back and reconciling us back to himself. But that also means that if creation never broke the covenant, creation's never not, since the time of Noah, creation has never not been in covenant with God. God has always been faithful. It's always been faithful to it. Uh, you know, how does a tree do God's will? Can God's, can a tree go, do God's will? That's a big philosophical question. What do you think? Well, th- I think that um, in a, particularly the restored order of grace, and in, in as much as Christ took up the entirety of the world, I think that it is God is sovereign, and so there is no way for a tree not to do God's will. I think there's no way for a tree to, do, to not do God's will prior to Christ, though. Because what is God's will? What, what is God's will for a tree? It, his will is that it grows and it sheds its leaves in the, in the fall and it restores and it does all the things that a tree does. So we're not, it, it's inanimate in a sense, but it's also alive and living and doing things and it's doing things in accord with the will of God, which is just sort of a beautiful thing. A dog, his instincts, you know, it, it's in accord with God's will. Now, here's the issue that creation can actually also respond to the things that we do. So, you know, you know, the ancient rabbis said that the reason we have natural disasters is really because of human sin. Not in the way that, you know, the televangelists would be like, oh, there's, there's hurricanes and fires, it's because we're sinners. It's not that. That's not the idea. The idea is because we don't actually understand how to live in this world and we're constantly disobeying God's will, that actually has ramifications out to the rest of creation. I mean, the sin that I commit affects the people around me. That affects the people around them. There's ripples down to the very fabric of creation. So when we see, does that make any sense? I'm getting a little bit kind of philosophical and out there. Again, I don't mean, oh, that person committed a sin, therefore they're going to get hit with a hurricane. No, that's not it. But it means all of creation is out of whack because of us. Which is why in Romans, then, which what I'm working on for the, the dissertation, when Romans, when Paul says in Romans, creation is groaning out in travail, waiting for what? Do you remember what Romans says creation is waiting for? Revelation of the children of son of the, the the revelation of the children of God. Which is profound because you'd think it would say creation is groaning out in travail, travail, waiting for God or waiting for God to fix it, or waiting for Christ's salvation, but it doesn't say that. It says creation itself, the very nature, is groaning out in travail, waiting for us, 
for the revealing of the sons of God, for us to get our acts together and actually act like redeemed human beings in the world. And once that happens, we get the sense that there'll be an order to creation again and things will begin to fall into place because we are sons and daughters of the king and if the princes and princesses begin to act like princes and princesses, then the kingdom will fall into order. Does that make any sense? It does. It does. It, it, but it, I still have a, a, a struggle with the whole notion of uh, the fall of all of creation with the sin of Adam and Eve. I mean, and because because I cer- I mean, I, I see in a certain sense, like, but don't we believe that that creation has fallen? Yes. Yes. But but, but again, but, as Romans eight says, not of its own will, not because it did something wrong. But then, how can you say a fallen thing does the will of God? I don't know if it's right to call creation fallen. It's broken. Okay. It's damaged, right? If if a spouse, if one spouse, if a husband cheats on his wife, he's he's um, I don't want to say he's broken. Them. Well, he's broken his marriage covenant. Yeah, he has, right? That's proper to yeah. say. So if a husband Absolutely. cheats on his well, wife, he's broken the marriage covenant. Their relationship is totally jacked up now. It can be fixed. It can be reconciled. But the wife, who did not do anything to break the covenant, who was faithful, still deals with the hurt and the fallout of that. The children, who didn't do anything, still actually have to deal with the fallout of divorce. That's in the same, in, yeah. in an analogous way, why creation is dealing with the fallout and the brokenness of our sin. It did not sin, though. It didn't do anything wrong. I can't do anything wrong. And it might sound like, a, like why, why are you pointing that out? Of course creation can't do anything wrong. But it bears noting that God made a covenant with it, Human beings broke that covenant. It means God has never ceased to be in relationship with his creation, which is why, geez, when you see Jesus then taking up the material things of creation, like water and bread and wine, and using those things to bring about his glory, isn't it profound that he used the very things that he actually established a covenant with to then show himself and reconcile the human beings who did break the covenant back to himself? It matters that, especially we as Catholics, recognize that God uses things of creation to bring us back to himself. Why? Because creation is still in covenant with him. Does that make sense? It does make sense. I mean, that's... um. And maybe that's the take-home, uh, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I mean, it's um, it's still... It's hard because I'm so used to have, have considered... The re- like almost as if nature is in rebellion, um, rather but than. But towards who? Towards who? You're um, right. I think that's a. I think that's a good metaphor. But who is it rebelling against? Well, see, I was just thinking entropy. I was just thinking that it was just jacked up and that it was it was destroying itself. But you use the word rebellion, which I think is important because the ancient rabbis used that word too. Well, hey, I'm I'm pretty close to being an ancient rabbi. <laughs> but who is it rebelling against? Um, if you use the metaphor, God. it's personifying creation. No, that's the important point. Who is creation rebelling against? Man. Yes. Creation can't rebel oh. against God. It, it, it can't. I mean, it, we're personified. We're we're anthropomorphizing things. So so in that little world, you know, creation is is rebelling against. Uh, you know, so I was I've been reading the ancient rabbis because I think they speak to to Saint Paul and what I'm working on here. But you know, the ancient rabbis and they they loved storytelling. They loved writing things in like a folklorish style, and that's okay. But in the stories that they wrote, trying to explain what was happening in Genesis, they said yeah. that um, the rabbinic stories say things like when Adam and Eve ate the fruit. 
Well, there's one story. It's it's a it's a writing called The Life of Adam and Eve by these ancient rabbis. It's part of the, what's called the Midrash. But it actually says, and this is, again, people trying to put words to something that we don't exactly understand. But they said when Adam and Eve ate the fruit and they became ashamed of themselves and started looking to cover up, the rabbis write that all of the trees actually shed all of their leaves. And we're like, no, I'm not giving you my leave. We're mad at you. All of creation is ticked off at you for misusing us and jacking everything up. So no, we're not going to give you our leaves. Which I just think is a fascinating story that someone was writing thousands of years ago. To think about, whoa, creation is a messed up place because of us. And it actually says only the fig tree would give its fruit because the ancient Jews actually believed that the fruit that they ate was a fig. And so oh. it was the fig tree that they used to cover up, which is a whole different, that's a whole different conversation. Well, just, re- just remember, you can't eat cookies in bed, okay, Scott? Fig Newtons. But I, but, but Feta, it's not a cookie, it's a fig Newton. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Scott, do you, oh know that, do you know how much fun it is for me in like the most serious uh, <laughs> descriptions of the scriptures to just totally derail everything? I just enjoy it. Like, I, I, can't I do even know tell that. <laughs> I do know that. But, um, but is this making any sense, though? It is like I actually okay. I, like y- you're converting my mind and my heart on this one because I I was like I wasn't okay. I wasn't my my worry you. is my worry is that you're just distracted and you're moving on to other things. I'm not. No, I'm not distracted. I'm totally listening. Okay, because you're not I, buying anything I'm saying. No. Okay. Th- no. Okay. We're, I, I mean, I think it, this is a big. Together. This you is can't a weird see my concept. Face. I know. I can't. Th- is, this is a really weird concept, though. But isn't it fascinating? And again, I think we as Catholics are really some of the only ones who recognize this. Jesus uses created things to save us. Absolutely. That's what he uses. He uses water. It's not just his word. It's water. It's bread. It's wine. It's grapes. That's profound to me because we as Catholics are the only ones that actually really acknowledge that. That it's the material world that... that's a, this is a dangerous line. I almost said it's the material world that saves us. God saves us, but he uses the material world to do it. Isn't that... It sounds new agey, right? It sounds weird, but that's what he does. Because why? Well, because yeah, it's yeah, still was, good, profoundly good. I was uh, talking yesterday just about how it's it's absolutely essential that our faith is made concrete. That's why prayer, yes. fasting, and almsgiving are, yeah. are like three just absolutely fascinating expressions of concrete moments of faith saying yeah. that no I'm going to live this literally in my life and and that's why yes. um th- no matter does matter matter matters I mean that's always matter the, matters, that's baby. always the thing is we are a sacramental people I just have never I, I had never really thought of like okay well and what is creation doing is it rebelling what is it what's actually happening in the midst of all of it but I but I can see how um uh, at the same time, matter does have um, spiritual memory. Yeah, I, yes, it does. That's why we bless, and why things are things are cursed, yeah. and things are blessed, and there is a reality to that. Yeah, we forget how important because we live in the culture we live in, and because people have misused environmentalism and things like that. I think we we tend to be almost allergic to talking about things like this sometimes, because like, well, we don't well, want to get all I don't want to get all weird on us. Yeah, the I think this is a great s- and crap. Well, it's a good segue there actually is directly yes. into the second reading um, yes, wi- from First Peter. 
Yes, very much. He's he's talks, he talks about this. He says baptism. Well, which real, corresponds real, to real this. quick before you, before you say that, just to remind okay, everybody, First Peter, and then I want you to say First Peter context though. Wait, remember, this is Peter. This is Peter at the end of his life. So this is not the Peter of the Gospels who was you know impulsive and whipping out a sword and, and uh, you know being called Satan by Jesus <laughs> and all of that stuff. This is the Peter who's now matured in the faith. This is the Pope in his elder years. You know this elder wise holy apostle now reflecting on all of these things that he's spent a number of years living out. But that that's who we're reading. So just to put it in context, that's where this is. That's that's sort of what this letter's doing. Now, go for it. What were you going to say? Well, he says this. He says, baptism, which corresponds to this, saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body. Like, this is the thing is, is that um, th- th- that is what actually happens in baptism. Yeah. Dirt what? is removed. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You pour water on somebody, and there is a natural, absolute effect of putting water on somebody and pouring it over them. The stuff is going to be taken off of their body. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and that's actually one of the things. I was, I was sitting in the liturgy the other night and um, uh, uh, during candlelight mass and thinking to myself, gosh, the beautiful part about everything that we have in the liturgy is that it's both practical and theological. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah. The, the nature of how matter actually goes into our body and how we relate to matter is huge. So, so I, if, I'm, if I'm hanging out and um, I, I'm hungry, I'm going to eat bread. If I want uh, to be with my friends, I'm going to drink wine. These are things did you that just, just... Did you just say matter going into your body is huge, makes you huge? Are you calling me fat? <laughs> I am calling Sorry, you that fat. Sorry, that was a poor joke. I thought that could be funnier, but it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> Scott, you're always almost <laughs> funny. <laughs> <laughs> what a great, what a great line! Oh, it was a huge insult, but I love that line. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know that I don't believe that. I was actually just using it as a foil to make everybody I laugh. Know. I know the but best kind of humor is negative humor. But but just going along with what we we're saying is that that there is natural effects to things. Now, if you actually just look for the yeah. effects of things, it's it's really not good. We actually have to look deeper into saying, what is the meaning of this? And th- you can go as deep as you want into the meaning of matter and uh, uh, and discover the theological truths of what God is trying to do. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And and that leads us to the deeper question, because I, you know, I don't know if we've talked about Noah on this podcast at all, but I, I was always bothered a great deal by the story of Noah and the flood, because it just, I was raised, I don't know about you or our listeners, but I was certainly raised with this this um, image of this mean, ticked-off God. People are sinning. That does it. I'm sick of them. I'm going to destroy them now because I'm so mad and ticked off, which is j- just the wrong way to read the story of Noah. And it's really First and Second Peter that, that give us commentary on what Noah's doing. It's only Second Peter. It's not First Peter, but in Second Peter, you get um, this definition of wh- what is the vocation of Noah. And he says Noah's job was to be a preacher of righteousness or a preacher of repentance. Why did it? Why did God give Noah this huge job that would take so many years just because he wanted a really big boat? 
No, because he wanted a job that would take a really long time so that Noah had plenty of time to preach repentance and call the people back to God because ultimately the flood's plan B. God wants people to repent, to turn back to him. That's the point of, I mean, Noah's job wasn't just to build a boat. It was to bring people back to God. And that's Second Peter's clear on that. His job was to be a preacher of repentance or of righteousness. And even though that didn't work, God used then matter to bring about his plans, to bring, to bring hopefully repentance so, so people could look back and know what not to do. He used water as a warning to turn back, to repent. And now in the new covenant, he uses water to do the opposite, to bring us back to life, not to kill things in creation, but to actually bring them back to life. Yes, it removes dirt, but ultimately baptism is an is a image of us dying. We go down in the water, we drown, literally, and then we come back up and we're brought to life. But he's using the matter to do that. But again, we have to keep in mind what Noah's doing is preaching. He's using a warning from the created world to preach repentance, to bring people back. Because what God wants, more than he wants floods or destruction or wrath or anything like that, is for people to come back to him. He wants his people. He wants his creation. He wants his world. He wants what he has created because he loves it profoundly. Yeah, well, and, and, and Peter is saying uh, that an appeal to God for a clear conscience through the resurrection of Jesus. It's, it's, it's the same reason why people are so attuned to, to go to church on Ash Wednesday. They're, they're like, people need yeah. a clear conscience, and they're trying to figure out, how do I actually make that real in my life? Be- and then it says, who has gone into heaven is at the right hand with the angels. It's like we recognize interiorly something inside of us is absolutely made for this transcendence of just knowing that we are made for this most sublime reality that is is, is calling yes. to us in the most fundamental part of our being. And um, and so, but yeah. we need a clear conscience to be even, even have the antenna up to receive uh, that call and that notion and, and and to take it very seriously. That's why it's um it's yeah. such a gift that w- this is the beginning of Lent. It's like okay, yes, okay, baptism. We have been baptized. We have confession. We have these uh, ab- availabilities to encounter the resurrection of Jesus in the world, which we know is our sublime calling. Yes, absolutely. Which I think is a good segue into the gospel. Absolutely. Which there's more than meets the eye to this week's very short gospel. More than meets the eye. Transformer. Transformers. Okay. Wah, wah, Dude, come wah, on. Wah, wah, wah. Did you play so with the old metal Transformers? You better believe it. I cut myself on them. I sliced my dresser drawers. You better believe it. Dude, those old metal Transformers were like, they were pretty epic, man. I have to say, man, Optimus Prime up in here, Bumblebee. Dude, this is good living. But well, let's go. Those are the, the two that though. I had. Oh, nice. Okay. Um, yeah, you better believe it. So this scene picks up immediately from Jesus' baptism. Immediately, which is Mark's favorite word. But it, this is immediately after Jesus' baptism. So Jesus then is, ba- which uh, it's ironic. Well, let's, get a, let's get some context that. for a second, though. Okay. Because M- Mark. Don't steal it, my thunder. Oh, you know what? I'm no, going to no, let do you it. build this. No, do, just, no do what you're going to do because it might be better. I'm just I'm just saying that that um, Mark is um, uh, th- there's a lot of immediacy written um, yeah. into this. I mean the, the whole notion is a very fast gospel and it's and it's um, most likely intended for a persecuted Roman audience and yes and so correct. so so as we're reading it we always have to kind of put in our mind who this is primarily intended for so that we ourselves can engage it partly with that heart. 
Yeah, I actually think that, and uh, this isn't mine, but but a lot of people think um, Mark was. So we know Mark was Peter's scribe. He was Peter's right hand man, right? And he's probably writing this while Peter is in prison facing death, about about to be martyred. So number one, yeah, it's written to a persecuted Christian community back in Rome, but it's also being written probably from the mouth of Peter as he's about to die. So he's like, ah, hurry up, get this down, get this down, write this down, immediately this happened, and then, oh yeah, and then this happened. So I mean, there's oh an wow. urgency both to the audience and also I think Mark is desperate to get the words of the Pope down on paper before he's done. Yeah. Yeah, that, okay, yeah. that would make a ton of sense. I like that. I don't know that for sure, but I, I think it's a pretty good theory. So yeah. um, as he's telling the story, so Jesus is baptized. And again, it's ironic because we've been talking about baptism, and the readings have been talking about the imagery of baptism. And the baptism is what this reading actually doesn't include. But we, we got it last week, so that's okay. So as soon as Jesus was baptized, it's ironic. As soon as Jesus is baptized, takes on that image of drowning, really, which is prefiguring what he's going to do, dying on the cross. As soon as that happens, and the vo- remember the voice from heaven spoke, God, and he said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. It's the words of coronation that David spoke unto Solomon. I mean, Jesus is now publicly proclaimed king. So what does he do? When a king is, at least a good king, when a king becomes ga- king, what is he supposed to go do? Take his throne. Yes. Then what? Wage war. I mean, a good king, not a king who just sits on his on his butt. Um, I, I Wages don't know. war against who? Greet, greet the people and tell them he loves them. No, I no, you know. you were right. You said wage war against whom? Um, uh, the the, uh, the enemy nations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The enemies of the people. I mean, a good king is supposed to stand up for his people, right? Yeah, absolutely. So as soon as Jesus is proclaimed king, where does he go? He goes out into the desert. But here's the thing about the desert. In the Jewish understanding, in the ancient Jewish understanding, the desert, the wild places, the wildest parts of creation were understood to be the realm of the devil. That was where Satan had his authority was in the wild. I mean, you, we've been talking about creation and the natural order and how it was the one one thing that didn't rebel against God, it rebels against us, but it was still in covenant. That was never broken. That was never rescinded by God. Creation is still in covenant with him, but yet it's become seen as the place, the, the realm of the evil one, the realm of Satan, his, his headquarters, his hideout. So Jesus says, no, I'm going there. I'm going into the creation which never rebelled against God, which is in covenant, and I'm going to defeat Satan in the place that he thinks is his, because the first thing Jesus is going to do is take back the created order, which is fascinating, because he's going to save us. But the first thing he does is go into creation to wrestle and tangle with the enemy who has taken a false control of that place. And then it's ironic, as soon as he comes back, what's he doing? He begins to do exorcisms, showing his authority over the unclean spirits and the demons and Satan. And then he begins to heal people, showing his authority over the created order and bodies and human flesh. And then what does he do? He yells at that storm. It's in Mark chapter 4. Remember he yells at the thunderstorm on the sea? And he silences it. He's bringing creation back into order. Does that make sense? But it starts with going out into the wildest part of creation, which they believe was taken over by Satan. He's saying, "Uh uh-uh, this ain't yours. This belongs to God. I'm reclaiming it, and I'm doing it right now. And then he goes on the following verses to show why he has authority to do that. Does that make any sense? Absolutely it does. The, um, um... The uh, 
Which, uh, that's why we, as we see Jesus going through and like going through, he, like, I'm what, the reason why I'm hesitating in my speech is that um, the perception that Satan is authoritative in the wilderness is, I, I, I'm trying to t- put on my, uh, the new ideas that you're giving me. Um, would mean that as he's in the wilderness, what does he do? He faces off with Satan. Now, is does Satan have uh-huh. authority in the midst of this wilderness? He, I mean, he doesn't. And because uh, I, because we I can believe, see Jesus. No, I believe he does. He no, does. No, I believe he does. Then, because because oh, think about it. Think about what one of the things that happens when Jesus is tempted. Remember, one of the temptations Satan says, "If you would bow down before me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth." Jesus strangely doesn't refute the fact that Satan has authority to give him the kingdoms. Of the he doesn't say like, "No, they're not yours to give." You have no. He says, "No, you should worship God and God alone." Yeah. If, if and the whole binding of the strong man. You know the story of the binding of the strong man, where um, those the Pharisees show up when Jesus is casting out that demon, and they it's in the next it's in chapter one, but they say, um, "No, it's in chapter three. It's in chapter three of Mark." But they they come in there like, "Well, you're only casting out demons because you're working for Satan, right?" Because you're right, and he says, "No, I'm not working for Satan. Because a house divided against itself cannot stand, and Satan's kingdom, if it was divided, it would not be able to stand. Which implies that Satan's kingdom, at least then, stands. There mm. is actual authority. So, what has Jesus come to do? He's come to, I mean, Satan wrongly has taken power. He's wrongly, I mean, God has permitted it, but he's got this authority. And part of what Jesus came to do is strip Satan." of that authority that he's taken and give it back where it rightfully belongs, taking it back onto himself. But I think we have to acknowledge, and this is dangerous theological territory, I guess, but I think we do have to acknowledge that God permitted Satan some degree of authority that Jesus has to, because remember, he said, I came to bind and plunder the strong man, which means there's something to be bound and plundered. And if we don't believe that Satan had some actual authority, are we just saying that Jesus just came and did lip service? Did he just kind of fake a fight or was there a real fight with a real strong man that actually had to be beat up well and yeah i mean of course that we're he's not going to do some show just for show's sake yeah he's not yeah. going to just sh- do a but show it, it says something because i mean what it yeah so what it's saying though when he goes out to the wilderness He's saying, basically, Satan has claimed this false authority over my creation and has taken creation hostage. Even the wilderness, the very wild places, he's taken hostage. I've got to go set it free. Mm. So, again, he's setting us free, but he's setting all of it free. Yeah. Dude, that's... Which, again, we have an all-or-nothing God. He wants all of it. He wants all, dude, that's for sure. And... um, this is this is interesting because you know t- taking into mind like the the audience that is being able to witness and experience this they're they're having to face themselves real serious persecution and most likely even death and death at the at, at the hands of what we call creation i mean like they're just putting ravenous beasts into they're taking christians and throwing them to wild beasts and yeah and and this is and, and Mark would even being able to be able to say you know he was with the wild beasts and the angels ministered to him like you know you know what like here you are and Jesus is actually faced off in a very similar way to some of this stuff yeah 
and absolutely, th- and, th- and that and that you're going to be protected, and that in fact, like, no, you're going to be okay, and that yeah. the, the kingdom of heaven really is at hand, even when you see this stuff happening. Well, and that's why it's it's so significant that in the context of saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it's saying, oh, by the way, after John was arrested, and if you know the rest of the story, you know he's about to be beheaded. That's when we're hearing the kingdom of heaven is at hand because we're still going to see the threat. We're still going to see the hardships. We're still going to see the trials. But the kingdom of heaven is still within your reach. It's at hand. You can reach up and grab it. It's there, even though it might not look like it. Even though a created world might not look like it, God has still redeemed it. Even though I don't still, you know, I might not feel like it, I'm not a slave to sin. All of these things are illusions that Satan has lied to us about because we don't know what it means to be free. Well, gosh, this went in a totally different way than I was to- than I was anticipating for our podcast today. I didn't have a, I didn't know we were going to be discussing matter and creation and and uh, God's sovereign nature in the midst of it. But like, it's really beautiful that God is actually interested in the created order and and helping us to walk through that. And what does it look like to manifest the the basileia to theu, the the kingdom of mm. heaven in the midst of it? It's really it's really awesome. So. As you're going through, like Lent, I told everybody at, at, uh, on Ash Wednesday, I said, "You know why? <coughs> you know why we fast for meat on Fridays? Cause it's obnoxious. <laughs> it's just, it's just an obnoxious thing." It's oh, I, th- I was looking for the play on words there. I got it. It just because it's annoying. <laughs> it's just obnoxious. <laughs> like, like matter matters, and when we actually have to acknowledge <laughs> what the nature of matter is and how w- we become attached to it in a way that is disordered, it's really, it's really powerful and profound. Well, you and know where fasting, where the, where the tradition of fasting comes from, right? Um, I don't. Well, I mean, it's it's ancient and, and it comes from Israel, but I don't know. Well, there's only one occasion on which traditionally people would fast. So the ancients would fast when, what happened? You're, I, I cut you off. Were you going to say it? No, no, no. I, I was just going to say Nineveh is the only thing I can remember. Oh, Nineveh, they do fast, actually, which is, which is an interesting spin on this. But traditionally, you fast when someone dies. Oh. So oh. because of death, to recognize death and to, and to mourn, right? So even the Jewish fasting months, are th- the Jewish times of fasting line up with when the temple was destroyed because the temple was like a member of the family, and so it being destroyed was like death. So when do Christians fast? We fast on Friday. Why? Because we're remembering the funeral. Oh, wow. And that's why Jesus, remember, he doesn't permit the disciples to fast while he's with them. Oh, yeah. He's like, no, no, I'm still with you. You don't fast when you're at the wedding feast. You fast at a funeral. So we fast because, and so I mean we should refrain because we're remembering the funeral. We're living in the funeral. We're living in the the destruction of the matter, frankly. With the anticipation of the resurrection yes. of all time, the, the second coming, yes. which is just the best. Well, yes. y'all, yes. thank you for yes. joining us today, and we hope you anticipate the resurrection through your fast and that the yeah. kingdom of heaven is at hand and that the matter matters. Get to confession, yeah. get to the scriptures, get into yeah. the most blessed sacrament, baptism, yeah. holy yeah. orders, anointing yeah. of sick, marriage. Maybe not all of them. Well, I mean... Shoot. I mean, why not? Well, I'm not going to do holy orders, and you probably shouldn't do marriage. That's a good point. But other than that. (laughs) Other than that, that, make it happen, (laughs) (laughs) y'all. Yeah. And I'll be recording live from Oxford next week, so that'll be fun. Awesome. Well, till then, uh, like us on Facebook and uh, and keep the dialogue going. The Habarim is alive. Yeah. All right, everybody. See you next week. Bye.
The Word on the Hill is a production of the Aquinas Institute for Catholic Thought here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado, www.thomascenter.org. You can also send us an email at lankyguys at thomascenter.org. See you next week.